The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. Barbara's oh. taking this very seriously. I yeah, think she, she wants to try about... and beat Michelle Obama's score, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about the words and the associations and the blue carbuncle. I don't know. I don't feel this is like a modern sort of title. I'm going to say elementary, my dear Watson. You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. And welcome to The Occupational Philosophers, a not-so-serious business podcast designed to spark your creativity, curiosity and imagination. Simon, welcome. John, nice to be welcomed and good to see you. Good introduction. Shall we start as ever with what's caught our eye this week? What's caught your curious eye this week, Simon? John, coffee has caught my eye because I've spent the last two days in a workshop around coffee. And what you realise is even though we, you know, you like coffee, I like coffee, you think you know it. Once you dive down, oh my goodness, the world of coffee, I realise I'm like just operating at a one out of 10 where I really could be at a 10 out of 10. And the excited, I said to my wife, I said, look, the good thing is we love our coffee, but we've just got so much more of an adventure to go on. So yeah. Oh, the grind and the bean and oh, John, my eyes and heart have been opened. And here's the one thing I worked out because, you know, I like to buy things which are sustainably sourced and leave a good footprint, organic, etc. Now, uh, no baristas will go anywhere near the fair trade coffee because fair trade coffee only concentrates on the fairness of the trade, not on the quality of the coffee. So how's that? Those two worlds don't combine. Not because they don't want to, but because the beans are average. So it's like a plumber saying, well, I'm going to make sure everything we're using in your toilet is ethically sourced when I fix it, but there's a fair chance it won't work. <laughs> now, you would then go, well, not- based on that, I'll, I'll have to go with the bits that will work. So even though <laughs> ethically sourced, my ideal thing, I want to be able to, you know, I want to get the best out of my toilet. So that was my, <laughs> I don't know if yeah. the best definition. <laughs> but that's, just yeah, thinking- anyway, yeah, my insight this week. I'm just thinking you're very demanding, Simon. You want a working toilet and really good coffee. I know, yeah. I'd I'd hate to be behind you in the coffee queue. What (laughs) grind is it? Where do the beans come from? Where does it sit on this spectrum chart I've got here? It tells me about the different flavors. Just get on with it. And also, what's happening in the toilet at the back? Is that ethical? So um, so there you go, John. Yeah. What's caught your curious eye this week? (laughs) What's caught my curious eye is I was watching various... Wildlife programs, David Attenborough's back on telly, so he usually comes up with a a lovely documentary that talks about the different uh, flora and fauna across the world. And so it had us think about the collective nouns of things and animals and people, because he was talking about schools of dolphins and things like this. And I thought, oh, I wonder what the collective nouns are for these different things. So, for example, we would all know a board of directors. That is a collective yes. noun. We yep. we would have bananas. Do you know what the collective term is for bananas? A hand. Any idea? It's not. Well, it's a comb, oh. which I oh. kind of get. <laughs> I can kind of get that comb and bananas going. And then, but the my favourite is always animals. I mean, animals always give the best collective noun. So you have, for example, a prickle of porcupines. And then you've got, this is a good one as well, a mob 
of wombats. That's ah, yeah, <laughs> which gives them a sense of danger, I think, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, here comes a mob. Because the other mob you get is a mob of rioters. So if you had yeah. rioting mom wombats, I mean, you really would be quids in with that one, a mob of wombats. And then the very grand exaltation of larks. There you go, exaltation of larks. So I thought that was really good. So that's what caught my eye. I then started then extending that and thinking of what the collective noun for podcasters would be. And I decided on a shambles of podcasters. <laughs> Hashtag shambles, copyright, John Rice. Yeah. <laughs> but today, Simon is a guest episode. And rather excitingly, we have two guests. So today, the collective noun is a delight of guests. Anything but a there? shambles. So, John. Yeah. <laughs> As always, how exciting. We have, a, we have two curious cats. So it's a bit of a first. Two curious us. cats. Who are so, they, Simon? Give well, us an introduction. I'll, our first delight of guest is an innovator for public good and has worked as a public servant, a strategic human-centred design consultant, bartender, pizza deliverer, emu farmhand, and the leader of an academic research centre. He is now a course director of the Master of Creative Intelligence and Strategic Innovation at the University of Technology, Sydney TD School. The TD stands for transdisciplinary and is completing a doctorate in transdisciplinary innovation and philosophy. Our second delight of a guest specializes in identifying creative opportunities that respond to complex challenges and putting them into action. She's an experienced speaker, mentor, educator, project innovator, and artist who directs her energies to building our collective capacities to improve how we live. But there's more, John, but there's more. She's worked with some of Australia's leading practitioners and award-winning productions, including Jungle Boys, Australia's largest TV commercials production company, Mythbusters in San Francisco, and I'm sure you know that show, uh, and alongside key filmmaking professionals whose credits include The Matrix, Moulin Rouge, and The Great Gatsby. Let's... Welcome, our delight of guests, Roger Watson and Dr. Barbara Doran. Hey. Yay! <laughs> now, just before, I, just before I kick it off, is it Doran or Doran? How do you like it? Oh, I say Doran. Okay, all right. Yeah. Good, good, good. So, building on that, Dr. Barbara Doran, what's caught your eye this week? Well, it's school holidays over here and... My sister came up from South uh, Australia, so um, actually Melbourne, Victoria, and we've been, you know, had long lockdowns. I haven't actually seen her for ages. She's got kids and we had to entertain the kids, so we went down to the local Oval. She lives in a rural area and they'd been camping for the last few weeks. And we were watching the kids play basketball, but the, because it was holidays, it was a bunch of kids playing basketball. And what was really interesting was we were watching, you know, this ball bouncing around, and but there were kids from different groups and they were all sharing the same hoop. And they had this kind of self-organising way of kind of going, okay, your group has a go at the hoop and then, you know, somebody else has it. And she was just saying, so interesting how the city works and, you know, you come from the country and you – notice that there's all these people and there's a hive of activity and there's this real buzz, but there's all these things that happen. And it reminds me of kind of like ants' nests and termites and bees and how the city is this kind of place that draws human activity, but at the same time it has its tentacles 
out into the regional areas. So we kind of got on this really long rave about cities being like these kind of, you know, ecosystems and the parallels between them and then rural towns and in a way how if the further away you are from somewhere and the kind of more remote you are, the harder it is for, because Australia's got these huge vast distances between things, the harder it is to kind of cross-pollinate and we don't have a really great public transport system. And then we got onto this rave about how, you know, in Europe you've got this the very fast train system and you can kind of live in more regional areas and still get to the cities really quickly and there's this way of kind of sharing resources and ideas and there's this kind of more live network breathing pulsing system between regional areas. Anyway, it kept going, but it was, you know, it started with bouncing basketballs and the idea of sharing and this kind of idea that the city is this buzzy place. It's something that I think about a lot the benefits of the city and the way that we link up and that kind of the whole whole ecosystems approach. So I could keep going, but that was... I almost wish you could for another episode. (laughs) Well, yeah, (laughs) it is another episode. And is that for you, Barbara, that that's a spark of an idea or presents some sort of metaphor for ecosystems, as you might say, which you might find in different scenarios, such as an organisation. Yeah, absolutely. Not so serious business. And how you might ferment or create that kind of environment, presumably. How do we do this? How can we make this work for ideas to flow, flow all over? How are patterns of nature, patterns that we find in nature replicated through our own behavior, through the organizations we create, through finance systems, traffic systems, whatever, you know. Roger, what's caught your curious eye this week? (laughs) Well, this morning, actually, I had a coffee with a colleague who I haven't seen for about five years, a wonderful practitioner by the name of Judy Saba who works for the police. And it was instigated because a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to morning breakfast and there was a guest on the breakfast show talking about food tours around our multicultural suburbs in Sunday at Sydney. And one of the guests was Judy Saba. And I thought, could that be the same Judy Saba that I worked with at New South Wales Police, who um, uses her background in psychology to crack cold cases, uh, cold murder cases, as an unsworn officer? And so I reached out to her on LinkedIn, and indeed it was. So she's had this side hustle as someone running food tours around wonderful multicultural communities that we have in Sydney, Lebanese walks around uh, particular suburbs that have amazing restaurants and uh, amazing providors and uh, greengrocers. And for a lot of Sydney siders, some of these suburbs have quite a stigma to them. And uh, a lot of Sydney siders perhaps wouldn't go there for fear of violence. But I think the work that Judy's been doing is really challenging that and turning it on its head and turning that diversity of culture into a strength of Sydney. So this morning we had a coffee and caught up for the first time in five years. And I had my two children there because as Barbara said, it's um, school holidays and we've agreed to go on a food tour in the next couple of weeks. So. Ah, that was my next question. Are you, are you on a food tour and where is it to? Yeah, so it's in a suburb called Greenacre in the southwest of Sydney. And there's a lot of Lebanese restaurants there and uh, things that, I mean, I've visited that suburb, but I wouldn't know exactly where to go to find these things. So I think once I've been on the tour, it'll be somewhere where I'll take interstate visitors or family members who come to Sydney to visit 
and the conversation with her about her work was fascinating as well. There's a, a real crossover with the book that we're going to be talking about. And that's a lovely way, isn't it? I mean, food is such a nice way to get drawn into a culture, or if you're curious about it, because it's not just the food, it's the kind of the setup they have at those kind of restaurants. You'd see the way they, something of the way they live as well, don't you? Just the way they bring that restaurant to life yeah, as they serve yeah. the food to you. That gives you something as well. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. I like that. You can sort of tell, you know, which are the really good restaurants by the number of locals who are there. And, yeah. and that yeah. really draws me in. And I think with borders opening up again, of course, we're going to see more overseas travel, but we're so lucky in Sydney to have such a multicultural community and all of this really authentic cuisine. <laughs> Just so we get a fix of where you are in the world today, because we have obviously a global listenership. Whereabouts are you? We haven't had a two-guest episode before, yeah. but uh, yeah. Can you tell us where you are, Barbara? Where are you today? I am on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, which is the Indigenous name for otherwise called suburb Dulwich Hill. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> and that's in the inner west of Sydney in okay. Australia. And I'm overlooking Camaragal land, the traditional custodians of the land that I'm on. The knowledge is lost, sadly. We, we don't know the, who the traditional custodians were of this part of Sydney, uh, Lambie Heights. But I can see Camaragal land. I, I can see Manly from where I'm sitting talking to you. And for anyone who's not been to Sydney, uh, Manly is definitely a place you should go and see. It's a beachside suburb and it's just beautiful and vibrant and international. You're right on the march today for Sydney. We've got uh, got to go visit Manly, come to Greenacre. So, uh, <laughs> you know, clothing recommendations for the time we leave as well. So, no, this is good. This is good. Now, how would you both describe what you do? So, Roger first, and following up on that, what are your intersections? Like, what, what crosses over for you? So I, I guess in my bio, I describe myself as an innovator for public good. So I, I studied psychology as my undergrad, and my first foray into the public service was working with victims of crime, victims of violent crime. I uh, worked in a counselling team and worked uh, in triage with people who'd been victims of assaults and domestic violence, uh, sexual abuse as well, and um, worked with families of homicide victims. And really from that experience, I knew that I'd found my calling, not necessarily working on crime, although I have spent a significant amount of my career doing that, crime prevention, I should say, not working in crime, but working in crime prevention. And yeah, but what a challenging job as a young 20 something to have. And I, I'd sort of had my first experience with burnout after a couple of years of working in that context. I was homicide clerk for New South Wales, so if any family member was murdered, I'd be talking with the family members, arranging counselling, sometimes repatriating bodies overseas, working on the logistics of that, etc. So I had a, an opportunity to move to a different part of the department that I was working in, the Department of Justice, which was crime prevention. And I hadn't really a notion of crime prevention until I landed there. I landed there in a comms role and pretty soon realised that, yeah, this is definitely an area of practice that I think I can contribute to and that I think would help make the world a better place. So I did a Master's of Criminology to really learn the 
the trade and was applying that as a crime prevention officer and leading a team of, of crime preventers. And the way we'd work is we'd go out to local communities like Greenacre, as we've mentioned before, like Manly, as we mentioned before, and Dulwich Hill. And we'd talk with the local government area about what crime issues they were facing. And, and then we'd work with them to find an evidence-based approach of of dealing with that uh, crime issue. And so, you know, I'd done my master's, you know, pretty decent master's, I learned a lot. But as a practitioner, I was getting really frustrated with the, I guess, the rationality that crime prevention practice had. It treated quite complex societal issues as what we'd call simple problems that had a, an obvious solution to them. And I, I could feel that as a practitioner and I could see in practice a lot of, the people I was working with in community were using, coming from different disciplinary lenses and trying different things. And in our way of working, there wasn't really a way of doing that. So I started to get a bit jaded with how we were working, which was a problem because I was leading the team and that's not a good recipe. But I had an opportunity to come over to the University of Technology, Sydney in 2010 on a six month secondment to have a look at the Designing Out Crime Research Centre. So it was using design as a way of looking at crime. And instantly I saw, wow, okay, this is a different way of working. This is about taking on complexity in a different way, acknowledging complexity, not trying to solve it, using design as a way of understanding an issue, reframing an issue and creating new things, uh, new, new ways of, of responding to the complexity. So I recognise that. So I started my PhD there and the six months of comment turned into eight years of um, leading the, the team and a body of work that I'm immensely proud of and a body of work that has made lives better and continues to. For those of you visiting Sydney, our most visible innovation is a rubbish bin, but that rubbish bin has, has uh, taken on the complex issue of terrorist threats on our rail network. So the yeah, interventions sort of ranged from that physical object through to systems, policy, strategy, and where I sit now having done a, a lot of study into how people think and how people take on complexity. My work now is much more at the strategy end of the spectrum, although I could probably whip you up a prototype for a rubbish bin if I had to. So. Oh, good to hear. Good to hear. Good to hear. <laughs> Give that man four toilet rolls and some tape and he is away. <laughs> and really interesting, Roger, the, uh, as you're saying it there, the, the word that did come to mind, you said it was reframing, that a lot of these complex problems, and you talked to it in the book, which I know we're going to come to, this idea of making sure you're looking at the uh, a complex problem through different lenses, maybe, because then you might arrive or, or come to the right design or, or policy or whatever that would, would actually have some real impact. Yeah. So that's, is that, that's then something you have taken forward then into to the creative pursuit that you have with the book and beyond. That's right. And it's not necessarily as si simple as it sounds because these frames are often held in place by structures, by organisations, by practices that might be hundreds of years old and the ways of working that are entrenched. So the, the creative reboot, I guess, is a response to that and a way of opening up the space, bringing in a freedom of thought so that the more seismic paradigm shifts can happen. And there's a great local example in Glasgow, in, in uh, Scotland, 
where it was it used to be seen as the knife crime cop capital of the world and police had sort of done all the usual evidence-based things and weren't really having an impact and so they tried something different and they hired a public health person called Karen McCuskill who came into the that situation and looked at knife crime as if it was an epidemic and so that's a very different frame of reference to take on a, a challenge and she had enormously or well, they they had great results from that reframe and that that's a i guess a simple example of how a problem is framed in a certain way that usually dictates the solution frame or the, the frame that is responsible for the problem but if you reframe the problem from crime to public health it opens up an enormous opportunity of a new disciplinary space to apply to a problem that has probably not been looked at through that lens before so that's an example i guess of the yeah the, the reframing that really has a big societal impact there's so much going on here can we have <laughs> you I, i'd need to have you both back <laughs> together there's That's just so many ep- we've got so many episodes here to explore absolutely fascinating absolutely fascinating i've got loads of questions so i'm going to hold some back but yeah truly fascinating stuff so um, our, our other delight of a, a guest barbara tell us what are your intersections and how do you describe what you do okay i'm going to start with a conversation that roger and i have had in different ways on a couple of occasions And we often end up with this um, circling around this question of how then should we live or what might be the art of living? And those questions, those really deep, profound questions are something that I think we both share. And if we sort of circle back, our pathways may have been different, but they've been underpinned by these on one level, they're deeply human questions, and also they're about our kind of responsibilities to each other and also to the planet. So if I was to kind of step back and go, I often ask myself, like, how did I get here? <laughs> why, am I, <laughs> why am I like me? <laughs> and I grew up in Africa. You know, my parents took me there. My dad was worked in aid, and he worked in stuff that was broadly linked to sustainable living. And one of the things that used to happen because we lived in these, you know, places like Swaziland where there was lots of expatriates and we'd have these conversations where people had come from all over the world with the best of intentions to make water more available, to help women, to reduce disease, all kinds of things. And more often than not, things weren't stitching up, I would say. The conversations were, why things are not working? What have we not done? why isn't it working? And I was a kid. I just kind of had these questions floating in my mind without really kind of knowing that they had become my own questions. And then as I, when we moved back to Australia, I kind of had a whole bunch of other questions that were linked again to understanding urban living and commercial life. And they were kind of like these worlds that just kind of seemed like almost like polar opposites in many ways. And when I was sort of confronted with what what do I want to do and go to uni, I started to think, okay, well, what I'm really interested in is trying to understand humans. And I also want to understand what it means to live on the planet. And I, I want to kind of go deep diving into this. And I also have always loved making things. I think I was also really profoundly impacted by life in Africa where I just thought people were so clever <laughs> with how they use resources and how they made things. And there was just sort of, 
a very tactile engagement with the world and particularly through hands, being hands-on. You know, I remember, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but the the little kind of toys that um, are often made out of sliced up, um, you know, aluminium beer cans and drink cans and it's just so many instances of that and as a kid you just go oh wow that's so cool how did they come up with that and hacks on systems all the time they're kind of basic but they kind of it makes so much sense and it's really resourceful so that that was always kind of something that really fascinated me but I also had a really profound interest in building and I still do so I went off and did architecture and then kind of got a bit well, I had I got two things. I was really inspired by the sort of ecosystems approach that was um, part of one strand of architecture, and I kind of got despondent with the kind of mass building, which, you know, stuff that um, just didn't inspire me. Would be the short answer, and and then I kind of really thought, okay, what I'm really interested in is actually understanding humans. So I went off and did um, a degree in psychology and anthropology, and um, with a bit of philosophy on the side. And when I finished that, I had this burning charge to kind of really understand what sustainability meant. That was sort of the kind of early concerns. Well, I wouldn't say early. There were concerns in the 90s. They're still here now and they have actually been around for a lot longer than even the 90s around how we would live sustainably. And um, I thought, okay, well, I need to understand what, it, what nature. And so I went and did a master's in environmental planning and, you know, going back to that original basketball bouncing, you know, cities connection, those sorts of things are like how do, how do we live as humans, as a kind of species on the planet? How does that all work? How do we find that, that space of balance? And for me, one of the kind of powerful mediums for exploring that but also communicating about it was through the arts. And I loved film. I loved photography. I mean, I love drawing and printmaking, but I love those storytelling mediums because it felt like you were able to reach people in a kind of really human way with sort of the scenarios that maybe, I don't know, Excel sheets couldn't and quite possibly academic papers. So I um, thought, okay, I need to learn how to become a storyteller. And, you know, I started writing children's stories and I started working in film and kind of tried to teach myself through working, you know, doing how to make films and that was how I kind of came to meet all kinds of people because we've got a great filmmaking community here in Australia and then that filmmaking community ended up being part of my connection to go over to live in San Francisco. I didn't actually work on Mythbusters but my other half did so I was on Mythbusters sets all the time and I was in the workshops so (laughs) I absorbed heaps by osmosis and it was an amazing experience, it really was. And alongside of that, I've always been a teacher at university. And, you know, I believe in education is a really powerful way of learning to be together, but also how we do that can shape how we think. So this is where the creativity comes in, is how can we kind of live, but how can we use all these different tools that are at our hand, including education, to respond to those challenges. Now, I think we could end the podcast there almost. Like we've covered so much ground in a short <laughs> amount of time and we just set the intros. For <laughs> I'm saying this with all, all compliments as well. Roger, now I know you're heavily involved in arts. Roger, were you involved in music? I'm sure I read this somewhere, but I then could not find the reference for it. You were... You've got a, a degree in music or you played a lot of music. What's your uh, background there? I, I have a family history in music. So my father was 
in the Easy Beats, which ah, is one of Australia's yeah, biggest <laughs> bands. John, this is a very, yeah. Like, yeah, Easy Beats, yeah, very, very, yeah. very well-known yeah. Australian band. Sort of a, like a huge Australian to band. ACDC, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Have you held on to that love for heavy rock, Roger? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I, I um, actually have uh, some of my father's <laughs> instruments here with me, and it's definitely – I actually um, sat in on Barbara's – course that she runs on the master's program that we both work on which is creative catalyzer and i approached it as course director but also as yeah this is great and i want to do it so i engaged with the material and by the end of that six-week subject i'd started composing little pieces of music on my computer and slicing them into our recording <laughs> recordings of the the lecture material and yeah so it, it's definitely a creative output for me i haven't performed music and I, i'm not sure that i will but maybe that maybe never say never so i'm i'm learning bass I've, I've always played guitar and now i have a whole rack of guitars including my father's bass and he was the bass guitarist in the easy beats so it, it's a kind of special yeah I guess the question, and we talk a lot around on the show about the intersection of arts and science, technology, and what happens outside of the workplace, like the traditional workplace, how it sort of feeds into the workplace. How important do you think it's both been for you to have that as your counterbalance to some of the more academic work that you do? Or how does that play out, do you think? Yeah, hugely important. And it, it is sort of the art that I lean into so every night after teaching i'll pick up the guitar and just strum away or you know maybe i'll record the interlude for the to slice into the recording when i get it from zoom the next day it's been a go-to for me especially over the last i'd say three years before then it was listening to music and exploring different lineages of music sort of going back through back catalogues and interestingly, it, it, we were talking about framing before. So I'll just go back to the Easy Beats quickly. The Easy Beats met in a migrant hostel in Australia. Now, we don't have migrant hostels at the moment. We have detention centres. And I just wonder how many migrant, wonderful migrants have come to Australia and gone on to do amazing things like the Easy Beats. And I just wonder how the framing of that experience for people might impact, you know, will we get another Easy Beats coming out of a detention centre? I'm not so sure. It, it seems that those, that sort of framing leads to a traumatic experience rather than a, a new start, which is what the, the migrant hostel um, was. But for my father, music was a huge connector and a way of, of him connecting with different cultures. So he's Dutch by birth and in the band were uh, people from there was another a dutchman and people from england and, and scotland but they came together over music and so it, it was a connector for him it's a connector for me i guess back into my family heritage having not grown up with him around but having met him in adulthood and got to know him in adulthood it is a connector i guess back into my own family heritage and it's also just a 
a way I think of unlocking a part of the brain. So I spoke about Barbara's subject before. I would have the microphone off while listening to her and I would be strumming a ukulele or maybe you know, playing on my, my keyboard that's hooked up to my, my computer. Just tinkering whilst listening and while engaging. And I guess in, in the, the workplace, I do little sketches. So Good to hear. Good yeah, to hear. At, yeah. at one point, I had a, a policy of trying to encapsulate every meeting I ever went to in a, a little drawing. So I could flip back through my notepads and, and see an ice cream if it was a, a really sweet meeting or, a, you know, a locked treasure chest if it was a, a meeting that just didn't get anywhere. That, that kind of visual. <laughs> <language>. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of meetings, yeah. <laughs> I just have people sort of peering, what's he, what's he sketching? What's he sketching? What does he think of my presentation? <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah, Barbara, you're, you're, you're in a similar sort of creative space and like sort of mind blown when I read through your, your CV and your resume, this crossover, how does, how does that creation, let's say, drive the academia and the thinking and what's, what's the link there for you, if that's the right question? Well, I'm going to start with a kind of slightly academic response because in a way I feel like a lot of what we do creatively and particularly if we have a creative practice, we intuitively know what's happening and we're kind of following an intuitive path and which is sort of on one way kind of we have a sense of a direction and another way because we haven't got got a roadmap we're observing and figuring out what, what happens at the same time. But if you were to kind of what I love about neuroscience is we're sort of able to kind of jump in the brain and kind of look at it the mapping of energy um, and how it moves in a, in a way that people have maybe philosophized about and set, talked about what what's happening in a creative process. And one of the things that does seem to happen is that, and I, I talk about creativity as a form of fitness, is that when you're doing, you know, you might be drawing, you might be doodling, you might be playing with music, you might be playing with colour, you might be playing with, you know, what do you call it, dough, cookie dough. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. There's so many ways you can approach what is creativity, but you're, playing with the world in some way, shape or form. And that is at the same time changing the kind of information that's coming up through your body into your brain and whatever's happening at the same time is there are new pathways or new possibilities. So I think one of the things that people often kind of look for in creativity is like I did this and so it should lead to this, but I don't think it works that way. I think it's you're kind of honing lots of possible connections and you don't know necessarily how they're all going to combine. And because you might have been drawing or playing with colour and that is honing your attention to colour in the world and you might notice something or it might create a, a pathway to a memory or a set of associations that doesn't seem to have anything to do with colour at all, but you've been creating those possibilities in terms of how you might process information. And on the flip side of it, it's, you know, when I listen to Roger and, and I, I know this story well that he was responding in this way with his his creative musical combinations or compositions, I should really say, is that, you know, we've all got different mediums that I think we're attracted to because for some reason, biophysically, it, it, it works for us. So I really think that a lot of creative practices help us to kind of recalibrate our nervous system. They help us to kind of calm and make those connections. So in, in the same sort of way that they talk about sort of mindful meditation where, you know, if you've got sort of a certain mind state, then certain kind of connections can happen. And I think for a lot of people, that's part of their creative practice that 
intuitively. They're, they're responding to their body's call to do something a certain way so that they might make connections or see the world anew. Well, I'm writing so many notes here. Like, <laughs> you know, Just stepping in on that, Barbara, and much in the way that Roger has music as one of his go-to creative pursuits, is writing one of your creative pursuits? You mentioned about writing children's books. Do you still write as a means of putting something out there or just losing yourself in something? I think ultimately I love story. And I take a very, I guess you would call it multimodal approach. In, in other words, whatever medium is is involved in telling that story, I'm, I love embracing. And when when I've got that story live or it's sort of starting to breathe, it doesn't matter whether it's words, whether it's poems, whether it's making costumes, making sets, all of that just becomes for me easy and inviting an invitation to discover something new or gain a new skill. So when I say I wouldn't call myself a writer per se, but I find it easy to write things when I have a story to tell. And I find it easier to write things like story, children's stories and scripts and even lyrics than I do academic work. That is a kind of different kind of thinking. I think it's a synthesizing thinking and that's a form of creativity in and of itself. But for me, it's the story and bringing that story alive. Okay, now it's time for a thought experiment. Just to explain the context, our show is called The Occupational Philosophers and philosophers throughout time have done thought experiments where they may gather, they may stretch their thinking, take it, they, they reframe the way they look at the world so they expand their thinking, go to that higher level of reasoning and you know understanding, ask those big questions. So John and I like to do thought experiments each and every week, which we do just that. So this one, because I thought both your your long history in education, we would do a thought experiment around school reports. What we're going to do is we're going to give you someone's school report. So it's a true school report. And you have to guess which person it is. We'll give you two choices. So it's either be, you know, an A or a B. Okay. And if you uh, get it right, there'll be much salutations and clapping. If you get it wrong, we'll just move on to the next one. So first one, let's kick off. This person has glaring faults and they have certainly glared at us this term. Was this for Oprah Winfrey or was it for Stephen Fry, who's the actor and writer? We'll go to Roger. Who do you think? I have a bit of a family connection to Stephen Fry. Yeah, he. Um, so my wife's uncle was the chap whose credit card was stolen that led to Stephen Fry going to prison way back when. <laughs> I that, that is a hell of a connection. <laughs> such a fan of, of Mr. Fry. And I, I think I think it was Stephen Fry's school report. Correct. That was Stephen Fry's school report. Not the answer I expected, but the story <laughs> is good. All right, John, fire away. What's your okay. Next one? So this one for you, Barbara, is a constant trouble to everybody and is always in some scrape or other. They cannot be trusted to behave themselves anywhere. Was that Winston Churchill or Michelle Obama? I think it was Winston Churchill because I've heard Michelle Obama talk about herself and she describes herself as a very good student all the way through. And 
and a pleaser. <laughs> uh, we've forgotten you watched TED Talk. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, that is correct. That is correct. Right. Next. We one. might have been out to add, if I'd added Boris Johnson or Winston Churchill, you might have been uh, struggling a bit there, wouldn't you? Uh, that's <laughs> but, the one. Yeah, I'd, I'd be pushed a bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Certainly on the road to failure, hopeless, rather a clowning class, wasting other people's time. Was this Jim Carrey? Or John Lennon? Roger. <laughs> oh, wow. This is a tough one. Uh, John Lennon was very cheeky, I understand. But I'll go for Jim Carrey. <laughs> Sorry to say that was John <laughs> Lennon. That was John Lennon. All right, John, over to you. Okay. He will either go to prison or become a millionaire. Was that Richard Branson, the entrepreneur, or Al Capone? And that's to you, Barbara. Yeah, I, I reckon it could be Richard. I, I've read his, his bio and I know that he definitely struggled in the education system and had some brilliant ideas. I'm going to go with Richard. Yeah. That is correct. That's an exceptional answer there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. Well done. Our next one. He will never amount to anything. Was that the Dalai Lama or Albert Einstein? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, look, I'll, I'll go for Einstein. <laughs> ding, ding. That That's is a... right. Well done. Well done, Roger. Well done. A, I was thinking we could have kicked off an international incident if Roger had said the other one. <laughs> Let's be fair. <laughs> Barbara, a persistent muddler, vocabulary negligible, sentences malconstructed. He reminds me of a camel. Was that... Roald Dahl, the author, or Gene Simmons from Kiss? Oh, that's cheeky, that one. It's I've the read camel that's throwing bio. you, isn't it? Yeah, well, I've read Roald Dahl's bio. I haven't read Gene Simmons. It's <laughs> a good one. Should have um, seen what they were doing, yeah. <laughs> just trying to think. Look, I'm going to go with Gene just to, just to keep it kind of – I don't remember Roald having issues with mumbling, but he could have, right? It's not. It's just not oh, resonating with my association a, with role. It right? was a. It was a persistent muddler, not mumbler. That, oh, was that, muddler. Was that, did you okay. hear mu muddler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. muddler. Ooh. I don't know if that yeah. changes it. At we all. will need to take an answer, or you'll have to buy this parcel. <laughs> Look, I'll go with Jean, but it's. It, I don't know enough about Jean, uh, but it's not what I associate with role. So there you go. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is Roald Dahl. That really? Roald Dahl, okay. yeah. Should we do one more, Simon? Yeah, I think I will. I think I will. All right. Which one? That's oh, one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Would be a very good pupil if she lived in this world. Is that Dame Judy Dench or Liz Trust, the new UK Prime Minister? <laughs> oh, now you're being cruel. <laughs> <laughs> Thought experiment. We didn't yeah, say it'd be yeah. easy. Um, I don't know enough about the new Prime Minister. She wasn't really on the scene when I lived in England. So, and Jame, Dame Judy Dench, what a, an amazing person. And I guess as an actor, being able to dissociate is an important skill. So I'll go for Dame Judy Dench. Your forensic background has come in very strongly here, the way you go through this. It's, it's Dame Judy Dench. So, well done. 
And that was the thought experiment school reports. Da -da -da -da. <laughs> Now, we absolutely loved working through your book, Creative Reboot, and very exciting to have be sitting here with newly minted authors. Now, look, where did the inspiration come from for the book and the title? And I guess the following one is why reboot as opposed to something else? So just the title, I guess, is what you just to a large extent what we're trying to do is reach people who, for whatever reason, feel like they've lost their creative mojo or they might be working in environments that they feel that you can't be creative in, particularly people who are kind of working in really analytical roles um, or whose workplace is very sort of procedural and or people who have ended up in that space and maybe feel that somewhere along the line there's been a kind of progressive loss of their creative pulse. So the reboot thing is how do you kind of bring it back up? How do you revitalize it? And it's very much based on the premise that we are all born with it. You know, you look at children and they're just endlessly creative, endlessly curious, endlessly playful and experimental. And somehow we seem to kind of lose that spark at times, depending on our particular practices. So that was that's where the, the name of the book came from. What was the other parts of the question? Oh, I guess the early part was where did the inspiration from the book come from? I guess that sort of might be one of the same. So, Well, it's a little bit that, but also I think the, the inspiration is also that I think we've come to kind of look at creativity in this kind of weird way as if you're sort of born with it. Maybe you might be a genius and we often associate it with either people who are kind of working in, in the innovation space or you're an artist yeah. and we've kind of lost this conversation around creativity in its many different forms and how it might be kind of recognized in many many different kinds of disciplinary practices so the book in and of itself is the bringing together of many different disciplines and practices just little bits and little nods little tools that are used all over the place and that should be recognizable you know maybe you might work as an ecologist or maybe you work as an artist or maybe you work in theater or maybe you're a voice practitioner so or maybe you work as a geographer so there's there should be little echoes all over the place that kind of go, hey, everybody's invited here. And Barbara touched on it before as well when she used the words, how then shall we live? I think in, in the work that I've done over the last 20 years uh, across a bunch of sectors, I've come across a lot of workplaces that are really stuck in analysis paralysis. You know, they, they try to analyse their way out of a, a complex issue. And as a world, we're drifting into a future that's not of our choosing, and that's not good enough. We need to take responsibility for the world that we are shaping. And creativity is a really necessary ingredient for that. If we can't step out of our current frames, and if we prioritise efficiency over creativity, then we're just going to get to that endpoint faster and you know things aren't really heading in in the direction that we want so i think part of the overall work that barbara and i do with our colleagues is about working with organizations to unlock that analysis paralysis to bring in different ways of coming up with better outcomes for the world and you know, the people that barbara and i work with on the master's program are leaders in, in organizations who can affect change 
and the program that we work on has creativity stitched through it and reframing stitched through it and so that i guess if we talk about the inspiration and the ambition of the body of work that barbara and i are working on it, it really is that you know that global vision of you know we need better ways of working we need different tools we need to not drift into a future that's not of our choosing but to deliberately shape a better world picking up on some of the language early on in the book there's a talk about creative intelligence and i think barbara maybe that comes a little bit to what you were just saying is a recognition maybe first and foremost that we all have different creative there's almost intelligences it's almost like gardeners multiple intelligences that within the yeah. creative spectrum we can all have these different things so yeah. there's a recognition that we need to be able to draw that out and then you also talk about creative fitness which suggests then that having recognized that we can apply ourselves and practice and exercise to do that is that kind of almost something of the what the book is seeking to encourage for people to recognize they are creative and then recognize then there's a way of exercising a way of working to then develop that would that be who wants to talk to that maybe i'll jump in and then may want to kind of bounce off it but yeah absolutely that's it and it's the idea that you can there is many ways and i would i hate putting things in boxes but i it does draw on gardener's ideas in that it diversifies what we think of even as being an intelligence you know that people can be kinesthetically intelligent people can be olfactorially intelligent you get jobs being a a sommelier and, you know, a wine tasting, there's all kinds. Yeah. And some people can be kind of savants almost at one thing and is very exclusive. And then you'll find that there are other people who are very kind of evenly distributed across a range of different ways of knowing. And I really want to kind of create a space for all of that to be given space to breathe and to be recognised. I don't think our education system does a great job of giving space for that. But the other thing is that the more you practise it, the more you kind of – it's, I don't think it's anything more than the same sort of principles we would apply to exercise, you know, called catching a ball. If you practice catching a ball, there'll be one day a day when you catch a ball, you'll be able to catch three balls, you'll be able to do things that may be linked to catching balls but are not catching balls, and you'll be able to do it without even thinking because it's become part of you. So obviously if you practice a form of attention, this is what I think creativity is, it's a kind of a form of attention or attentiveness to the world. So when you started off with like all these, the curiosity stuff, that that's it. You know, it's like this sort of just noticing lots of different things across lots of different levels. And that's what the book aims to just kind of stimulate. And it can be something that might be linked to people who really haven't done that for a really long time. And there's this sort of structured journey in the book to kind of support that. But you could also be someone who's really adept at it. You might be someone who works in a creative profession but you might have let something go to sleep or you might just want to kind of short circuit an idea. You might've got into a kind of a circular way of thinking. So how do you bust out of that? So that's where all the tools come in because they should be usable quick and fast for people who are used to it, but also there to kind of help promote that fitness and diversity. Now, speaking on tools and structure of your book, it sort of leads into our next question. I guess, firstly, when I read through the book, it's so visual, like, my heart, my soul lit up really. When, and I'm, a, I'm from this space. So uh, as Roger knows, some of the stuff we've done together. So like, um, I'm like, oh my, this is so easy to engage with. So I guess number one question is, you know, it's very visual, but it's very action and making and doing orientated, but it also has a particular flow. 
So I'm interested in, I'm not sure which one to address first, which one came first, the the flow of the book or the approach, or I'd like to know a little bit more about those. And there's six key areas as well. And John, do you just want to read those out just so we get some context and then we can maybe talk to them? Yeah, so you have creativity, play and flow, which I know you kind of cite as being the foundational qualities. And I think that that's really interesting. And then you come into then practices around probing, blitzing, visualizing, scaling. And then there seems then a distinction drawn out to the last two, which is conversations and stories. So, yeah, that's a quite a chunky one to, to take a bite out of. But who'd like to start on that? Maybe those foundational qualities first, creativity, flow and play, because that's really interesting. And we've touched on those topics before and uh, when we've had some conversations before, haven't we, Simon? But uh, Absolutely, yeah. Roger? Roger, do you want to go to that one first? Maybe the foundational qualities. Yeah, well, Barbara's name is first on the book for a very good reason in that while I worked with her and uh, earned my name on the front cover of the book, it really is conceptually a lot of um, her thinking and okay all right stop there roger barbara can you tell us about creativity? <laughs> Thanks, mate, but uh really I yeah. <laughs> no i'm joking i'm joking, I'm joking. roger please. <laughs> keep going keep genuinely going. genuinely i'm joking this is a not so serious business <laughs> I, I, podcast I, I, I i'm a, just <laughs> i was about to throw to barbara <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we're doing t- we'll do table tennis here, and I'll, I'll bounce back to you in a minute, Roger. Sure. Okay, uh, I like this. But yeah, look, I feel like you've got to start with a playful space. It's got to be yeah. a safe space. Play is where we experiment, and I think one of the actually one of the people I quote in the book is a psychiatrist, Stuart Brown. He works with people who have maybe been at the top of their game, done things that were once their kind of core driving motivation and they've just lost they've lost their drive he's also worked with people who are really depressed and he's also worked with people who big organizations who want to innovate and he starts off with the premise that play is absolutely essential and in the way that kind of smoking needed a kind of a whole reframe because you know smoking was cool it was glamorous it was all these things and it needed a reframe to take on to acknowledge all the things that it is associated with. And he says that we actually need culturally, globally, a reframe of play because people often think the opposite of play is work. And he said, no, it's actually depression. So play is an intrinsic, evolutionary, adaptive quality that's linked to curiosity and recalibration and finding the boundaries and finding the, the edges. And it's kind of got an openness that's linked to playing games but it's it's less structured and you can riff and you can adapt so the things that roger talks about in terms of playing an instrument i might do this i might do that and dancers might do it what whatever it is whatever your play space is it's so important if we're going to kind of get out of the thinking and the bug that we are in you know we we can't kind of solve the problems of the world with the same kind of thinking and play is that starting place and then the other bit is Mm. that flow that's the kind of um, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi's flow theory, which is when you're doing something that you're deeply engrossed in, that is kind of got the right level of challenge for you, you so you're not bored and you're not so challenged that you feel intimidated or out of, out of depth, you will become so absorbed in the moment that you'll lose your sense of time and there's a kind of complete immersion in it. And the more you can kind of become aware of a, what that quality is that you're, it might be, you might be doing that for five minutes, but that five minutes is 
full absorption or it could be longer. That is really useful use of yourself and time and your attention. And also it can be a pointer to that's what I really thrive on. That's where I can really kind of sink in and kind of absorb life and respond to it. So those are the kind of foundations of like getting that going and giving people, you know, who say if you're, if you're used to working in a procedural scheduled world and you're trying to open people up to play or people who take themselves really seriously because they are the experts, you kind of have to wear a demeanor that you life is serious. And that's actually not the case. And especially if we want to kind of move, move and work together in an experimental way, we do need to find that place. And it, and it doesn't mean we're larking around being stupid. We can be doing that, <laughs> um, but it's actually giving space for this kind of quality of working together. So I, I think that's so important and that's mm. the beginning of the book. And then do you want to just talk a little bit about abduction, Roger, because it's kind of connected to that space of sort of searching and, and playing with the unknown. On this, John and I were talking about it first and we couldn't, John, what were you wondering? Innovative abduction, what were you I, thinking? I thought it was about kidnapping an inventor. <laughs> so it's like... So- Sounds like sound like some form of industrial es- espionage. For aliens <laughs> taking our best ideas back to their planet and then using them against so, us. Yeah, in a, in a, de- in a... but yeah, definitely explain more, uh, Roger, that uh, yeah, innovative so, abduction piece. Yeah, so, yeah. If we framed it correctly, yes. Yeah, yeah, and it's part of it, really. <laughs> so the phrase was coined by uh, a philosopher, Charles Sanders Peirce, who is one of the American pragmatists in the late 1890s. And that body of work went on to influence design research and design. And so I've picked it up from my colleague, Professor Case Dorst, who I I work with now and and Barbara and have worked with since 2010. So he's really the the guru of frame innovation. His research was a, a part of his research was interviewing creatives from around the world, architects, designers, planners, et cetera, to get an understanding of how they take on complex issues and one of the highlights of that body of work is this notion of reframing and the research center that i worked at with him was all about creating methods to support the act of reframing so design abduction is part of different ways of thinking so people are are used to the the term deduction which is about really reasoning from cause to effect so we know what happened we know how it happened how it would happen so then we can deduce the effect that is going to occur induction is slightly different in that we know the the what variable and we know the outcome variable but we're not sure how and so then we use induction to come up with a hypothesis that can then be tested so science draws on that body of on that particular logic quite heavily then there's normal abduction where it's solid problem solving based on experience. So we know the outcome we want to achieve. We have our discipline area, and then we use our experience to generate a what, to generate a a new thing. Design abduction or innovative abduction is a different beast in that the what and the how variables bracketed. So we suspend judgment on what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. We only focus on the outcome. And so when I mentioned the knife crime example earlier on, the outcome was still the same. They wanted to reduce knife crime. But instead of the how being policing, the how became public health. And that opened up an enormous array of of new what's that they could do. So that's 
innovative abduction where you put aside your preconceptions about what and how you're going to work towards an outcome. And I think it's a build on what Barbara was saying before in the development of that body of work to uh, methodologies to support reframing, play and flow was so important, creating that playful space. I used music quite a lot. A lot of that work was done in multi-stakeholder workshops or with community groups and lightening the some Fleetwood Mac to talk to a group of people about domestic violence was just so important. And then we would, you know, we'd use post-it notes, we'd use, you know, we'd, we'd build little models out of paddle pop sticks, etc. But all around a methodology. So not play for play's sake, play to open people's lenses and open them up to a different way of thinking, but then move into the, the creative space of what if things were different and, and how could we approach this challenge differently and what would that look like and that's where probing and blitzing really comes into it it's where visualizing comes into it as well so i think what we've done in the book and, and the flow of it really goes uh, while it's not necessarily a linear process the first step in all of my practice when I'm dealing with a really complex issue and multiple stakeholders is to find that play space and to acknowledge that we're all here dealing with really heavy content and therefore let's do it with a smile on our face and in a, a way that is playful because through that play we might just come up with a different way of approaching this issue. Yeah, I love it. So just that opening, like what you've spoken about, nothing's, and often we think, there's like, if you do this, then that will happen. All right, give me a model. I want to do this, go to the workshop, go bang. But, you know, I've talked about that so much as well. It's not, it's not like that. <laughs> it's, that it's that you throw so much stuff into it and, you know, eventually some stuff will come out if you create those right environments, but you're never quite sure what the path is. The high level of this then, and again, catching in some of the, within the book the there is a divergent phase though and then a convergent phase and are those six steps is that what you're trying are they the steps that would take you through that divergent through to convergent kind of outcome as it were yeah that's definitely the kind of idea i mean it's i think there's different pulses to the double diamond process of divergence and convergence but the play space is the place that opens up for divergence and similarly, each step is a process of kind of catching some of those ideas. First, you know, the so probing and blitzing is still about widening it out, looking for the possibilities. And it's also about tuning that sensibility to kind of picking up ideas, noticing things that are serendipitous, things that might be left to feel. And what I would call honing that intuitive response is like, oh, hang on a minute. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole for a second because it feels like it's related. I don't know why. And again, I, I find the people who are accomplished creative practitioners really are comfortable with kind of working in that kind of playful, expansive space because, and that instinct to follow an idea. And it doesn't mean that that idea is going to be something, but you're going to discover something along that way that will give you another kind of association. And then visualizing is a process of catching those ideas, finding their form, finding their color, finding their symbolic patterns of association visualizing is a way of kind of starting to chunk things and kind of bring it into into view 
And then I think of scaling as this beautiful space between thinking about the macro and the micro and how they intersect and kind of there's so many thought experiments you can play in that space. So you're playing thought experiments. It's that midpoint of kind of trying to land it, but also seeing what the possibilities are. And then the next phase is sort of taking it out again and playing with the social and the the conversational context so that you can kind of end up in this space where you tell a story and that story is really nuanced and it's a new story and it would never have been the story that that you thought you were going to start off with. Well, it it might be, but it's generally not and it shouldn't be. There definitely should be new stuff in there. I like this. And so it's, it's a way to take you, like we often will go in, we go to problem solving, we'll go think, okay, I can see the solution already, but this just provides so many, uh, I don't know, layers and openness and diverging and converging, all these different things to help you be open to that new story that's there as well and finding the, the story yeah, in, and, in this piece. So, And open, I guess, to that innovative abduction. So not every issue needs to have that kind of paradigm shift you know yeah it might be that you can come up with a a viable proposition that shifts the situation enough to be useful just through a little bit of design thinking like that yeah that, that that's yeah. great if that can happen but i think if you're only using an approach like that then you're probably only gonna end up with an intervention that's within the current frame. So it's really about opening up the potentiality to completely reframe. And an example of that, there's examples in the book uh, written by by people who've done Barbara's course and are doing the master's program. But a a particular example of something I worked on that had that that big paradigm shift was alcohol-related violence and I came at this from a couple of angles. So as a public servant, I was applying that rigorous evidence-based crime prevention approach to a little area in Sydney called King's Cross. And King's Cross back then was a real hub of nighttime entertainment and uh, adult entertainment and live music, etc. And it was also Australia's hotspot of uh, salt late at night. And so from a policing perspective, we knew what to do and we were doing it problem was it wasn't having any impact at all not really and so the designing out crime center that i later worked at applied this innovative abduction approach and reframed the issue through playful engagement going out and immersing themselves in the the night time and getting a, a sense of what was really going on talking to people trying to understand why they were there and coming to a useful conclusion that people were there as part of a rite of passage, a part of growing up. In Sydney at that time, it was a cultural experience to go to King's Cross and the vast majority of people would probably only go there once or twice and then, you know, that that rite of passage was fulfilled. But the uh, crime prevention approach that we had taken from the public service treated everyone basically as if they were a criminal and it wasn't helping. So if the, the outcome that we want is a safer nighttime. We've got to think and reframe from a 
knowledge of the values that people have that they want to experience when they go there. So if it's about rite of passage, where else do we see rite of passage? Where else do we see identity forming experiences? And one of the reframes that came out of that process was, well, actually music festivals are pretty good at creating a rite of passage experience that is part of identity forming as a young adult. And they have an evidence base behind them, which is called event management. So what if we, instead of trying to use target hardening and policing, what if we looked at King's Cross as if it was an event and used the principles of event management? Now fast forward 12 years now, a lot has happened in that space. There's now the Global Cities After Dark movement across the world there's 42 nightmares mayors of the night nightmares is a terrible <laughs> i like it though yeah. <laughs> 42 cities that have taken on this notion of uh, this is a, a late night economic development opportunity and if we use event management principles we can make it safer but without losing the vibrancy so that work was part of a global movement which would never have happened if i'd stayed in my role as a crime prevention officer using policing but coming over to designing art crime i was able to jump on that frame and help make it see the light of day and, and help organizations come to terms with it and, and visualize it through other student activities that we did and go to meetings with the Lord Mayor, go to meetings with this minister, that minister, etc., to just storytell, uh, which comes into the book later, around, well, what if we treated this issue as if it was something like this? And so to your point, Simon, yes, the thinking can happen just in a, a brief workshop, but if the impact we're looking for is big, then it takes years and years and years and it takes engaging a lot of people in that narrative and embodying that narrative through their work. And so I think what we're broadly trying to do, and this book is a big part of that, is to create that community of practice that can then take on these big issues in a, a different way to get to a different outcome and a better outcome. I was just thinking maybe come back to you, Barbara, as well, from Roger's comments there and what you were describing, the, the process. Is one of the biggest challenges just time and patience to work through such a process as is described and what Roger's just caught there with something which was a long process of engagement, of deep thought? Is it just maybe thinking about when you might bring it into an organisation? Are they just going to go, we don't have time? <laughs> To, yeah, to be so, able to get into it in this way is that the challenge or yes, as well as the mindset piece well yes and, and no in a way because I think that it, you know as I said it's a kind of a pat it's a, a way of attending that can be experienced and found in any moment you can be on the way to the loo you can be moving going to the train you can be in a shopping center it can happen anywhere and it's just actually a practice of attention. And that's one of the invitations in the book. There are these things that the cards are these shorthand ways. It's just like, just do this, like have a speed date with a color. Just go, I'm going to go, I'm going to pick that blue today. I'm going to look around the room. I'm going to pick that blue. And today I'm just going to notice that blue. And what you're doing is you're attuning your, your sensibility. And you might forget and you might like come in and out and it might be like two minutes at different periods of the day. But what you're doing is you're creating those pathways. You're practicing that pattern of attention. So 
anyone who tells me I don't have time, I say you do have time. You've got every waking moment of your day to just give it a little bit of a nod. And the more you do it, the more you, you know, you'll just be endlessly curious. And there'll be these kind of two things. Our brains are so complex. Our beings are so complex. We can notice and process multiple things at any one moment in time. So if we kind of just ask for our, our radar to be a little bit more acutely tuned here and there and build that in, we can do all kinds of stuff. So that's the first part of it. And that changes how we are and what we see. And then if we do that collectively to, and together, then we what, what we bring into a room starts to shift and change. But then there is that other stuff, which I would call the slow burn stuff and the ecosystem stuff, because we do live in a culture and we live in a culture where we have practiced how to pay particular kinds of attention. And we know we notice certain things, we use ourselves in certain kinds of ways, which almost like we will use time in a particular way. And that's still, it's still a practice. So we need to kind of bust out of that. And then when we, we change how we are collectively in a moment, in a room, in a, in in an innovation strategy, that too will slowly lead to things. But I think we need support from each other. And that's that community of practice stuff. We, We need to collectively create, create space. And for those big complex networked challenges, they do take time and they do take a distributed kind of network that will hold space for those things and then you'll slowly see these kind of shifts in the system and and the forms of kind of patterns that are attracting attracting each other and holding things in form or the releasing of patterns so it's yes and there's and more (laughs) so yes and uh response there this is too good holy shit like serious (laughs) you're the perfect guests for occupational philosophers i mean the very fact that he said, how should we live life? Well, that was the ultimate philosophical question as posed by Socrates as he walked around Athens. So, yes, this is it. You're in the right space. This is the Venn diagram that we wish to play in. <laughs> Time for another thought experiment, Barbara and Roger. And as we prepared for today's episode... Um, we went to find out about some more books that you've been writing because obviously Creative Reboot is one of the books you have. But as I did a search on Watson and Duran, I found that you've also written Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, Volume 13. I don't know if you know that. Do you remember writing that? I do not remember. I'm quite serious. <laughs> it has Watson and Duran as two of the accredited authors. So I thought, well, wow, so much content coming have... out. They can't even remember back. Like, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll put it in the show notes so people can see. So I thought, wow, you two are pretty impressive. I mean, finding time to write Sherlock Holmes as well as fantastic books about creativity. So, so this experiment is called Elementary, my dear Watson. <laughs> and the question tone at the end is uh, necessary there with the question mark, the rise and tone. We're going to give you six Sherlock Holmes titles and you have to answer which you think are true. Could have been written by you, obviously. And if you think they're true, you have to say, elementary, my dear Watson. <laughs> and if you think they're false, you have to say, the game's afoot, Moriarty. All right, so there we go. I will come to... Barbara, I'll come to you first and then Simon can come to Roger. Well, so why don't you go one. to Roger? Because I had him last time, last sort of... The okay. Lama, right. So I think that'd be okay. Yeah. So Roger, let's give you a, lo- a little, maybe an easy start here. The Hound of the Baskervilles. Elementary, my dear Watson. Excellent. Yeah, well correct. said, sir. Okay, <laughs> Barbara, this is for you. The case of the hairless cat. Ooh. Elementary. 
He should have been saying, the game's afoot, Moriarty. Oh, the game's afoot, Moriarty. Yes, that is false. (laughs) And if you only just say elementary, and you do get it right, it's only half a point. You need to say the whole thing. Elementary, my dear Watson. Elementary, my dear Watson. Which was wrong. Okay. But uh, the game's afoot, (laughs) Moriarty. So. <laughs> the game is afoot, Moriarty. Now we've got the 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 things yeah. down there. Okay, John. So, Roger, a whiff of scandal. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I think I, I like I, I I think I either know the book or chapter that this is from, or I know. Uh, a book or chapter that has a plot line that would line up with this. So I am going to go elementary, my dear Watson. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, Roger. Oh. It's the games of foot, Moriarty. Oh, no. uh, I did a mix up there of a few things, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what makes this such a challenging thought experiment. Oh, we don't want to give you easy thought experiments. Not. Socrates wanted to, wanted to be challenged. So Stretch, Stretching the minds. <laughs> The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. Barbara's oh. taking this very seriously. I yeah, think she's, she wants to try about... and beat Michelle Obama's score, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about the words and the associations and the blue carbuncle. I don't know. I don't feel this is like a modern sort of title. So I'm inclined to think that it might have been something that infatuated people in previous times. So I'm going to say elementary, my dear Watson. That is correct. Well done. You're on the scoreboard. Yes. Well done. Well done. Yes. <laughs> You're now ahead of Boris Johnson when he was on. So well done. Well done. <laughs> Two more to go. Two more to go. Roger, back to you. The Adventure of the Solitary Cyclist. Mm, yeah, like it could be another mashup, but it definitely feels like a Holmes story. So I'm going to say elementary, my dear Watson. That is correct. You're getting into the groove now, aren't you? <laughs> and we've and, only got uh, one more, unfortunately. Uh, our last one. This is Dr. Watson's Mysterious Wooden Cabinet of Oddities. Well, obviously, you'd want to say that it's belongs to Dr. Watson, but then maybe somebody else wrote about it and it's a trick. Um, or it might be a new one of those new takes. Oh. I'm going to say it's a new take. So I'm going to say games are put Moriarty. That is correct. That is correct. Well done. Well done. Well done. And that brings us to the end of Elementary, My Dear Watson. (laughs) I have to say, I've never seen anyone take it. So give it so much thought as you, Barbara. That was quite impressive. There was genuine sort of, okay, let's let's work this through this. <laughs> it was I think you were probing, blitzing, visualizing. Storytelling. No, yeah. this is not a story. This is a story. It's well, fantastic. you know, the cabinet of well of oddities makes me think it does. It stimulates my visual imagination. Um of, I had this friend who made this most amazing cabinet of curiosities and it was in part inspired by all the sets that were on different versions of Sherlock Holmes you know because it was such a sort of it was of that era but she used kind of technology and phones and it was just amazing I've never seen anything quite like it (laughs) since but anyway so I was visualizing (laughs) (laughs) excellent I could see it 
Now we just come to a rapid fire round. First one, we have built the Occupational Philosopher's Manifesto, but every time we have a guest, we're also building the Occupational Philosopher's Manifesto, if you see what we did there. Now, what one thing of all your learning do you think should be included? Barbara, I'll go to you first. Of all my learning in life? Yes, one short little piece. Draw. Use your hands. And even if you haven't got your hands, you've still usually got connections that are connected to your hands. So do whatever is associated with your hands because they make memories and they connect our brains. Roger? Uh, It's got to be framing. Be aware of the frame that's being presented to you and build a capability to reframe. Now I'm just visualizing we've got a, a tree of our Manigesto tree. There's not a lot of space on that, so I might just get the first few bits, but uh, I'm just <laughs> letting you know. Reframe, right. reframe. Yeah, reframe. Yeah. yeah. And is there a, a book we should be reading? You could obviously say your own, but is there any other books that you think would be good for us to to dip into? Uh, maybe Roger, come to you first this time. Yeah, so we, we do mention in the book that this builds on a body of work that Barbara and I have both been contributing to. So Case Dorse Frame Innovation, new, Create New Thinking by Design, and a previous book that I'm also co-author of, Designing for the Common Good, which is a book of case studies, methods and reflections on practice. And Barbara, and- book recommendation? Oh, look, I have so many different books and I would have said the same from the the root system that we built on is very much built on frame innovation. Actually, Case also has some other wonderful books if you on notes on creativity. So there's lots of sort of little how-to things. And I think that that's the sentiment that we're kind of playing into. It's like we've got lots of books that describe the theory of and maybe even provide us with stories, but we're a bit short on those kind of tool books that yeah. give us lots of quick short ideas and how-to approaches and kind of give us at the same time a little bit of meat behind it as to where it comes from and why. So I actually even like to talk about cookbooks. There's yeah. some great cookbooks out there. And one of my favourite ones, and it's a, it's something that I actually use as a kind of parallel because I feel like we need more of these in the whole creative space is Stephanie Alexander's, I call it the Rainbow Cookbook, but the, I think it's called the Cookbook's Companion. And it's, you know, it goes from A to Z of foods and it's got pairing items and what little short tips of what you can do and also recipes that are collected from different people. And it kind of gives you this structured way of doing things, but also this um, how to riff and how to create combos. And I think, you know, if we had that for music and we had it for painting and drawing and, you know, all kinds of walks of life, you know, so that's my dream is like to keep making lots of tool books that just kind of expands. Cool, cool. And look, on that note, like we didn't get time to dive into it, this book, your book is so practical and it's so many so you have to it is not a is unlike any other innovation book i've sort of spent time looking at and it's so much fun to play in now speaking of uh, our next little piece is imagine it's the later years of your life you've you've wrapped up your careers in the world of innovation and creativity you've taken into your retirement home and they introduce you and they say firstly here's roger he's how would you like to be introduced <laughs> He's really old. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Still plays cricket. And what was that? Sorry, he still plays cricket. All right, I love it, Barbara. 
Oh, yeah, she's also really old. Uh, she's still pretty good at moving, but she's a lizard and she lives by the sea and she rolls into the sea regularly because she swam all her life and still does. But I'd also <laughs> like to feel like I've inspired people to ask those, those deeper questions and to surprise themselves with what they can do on the planet. <laughs> That's a hell of an introduction, uh, Barbara. I think the, the residents will have fallen asleep by then. <laughs> yeah they so, what did you say again what's her name barbara i got roger he likes cricket but you went on the bit so no <laughs> right what are you up to next what exciting projects are on the horizon for you uh barbara i'll come to you first this time what's, uh, uh, what's happening next i want to make a tv show Ooh. which does this and kind of shows it in action so where we are reframing where we're working with like something that's quite complex social problems, complex problems that we all need to be involved in, bringing together different disciplines, different thinkers, people who you wouldn't necessarily expect to find in the mix and seeing what we come up with. Yeah, so that's what I'd like to do. Just as you've said that, I just thought that sounds absolutely awesome. I can absolutely see that on telly, just where you would have people what come at complex problems and bring in all these disciplines and see what emerges and start to... Yeah, that, that's a brilliant idea. Absolutely Sounds like brilliant. when uh, John was on the block in the UK. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was on the sides of buses and everything like. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. Here are my yellow overalls. John was Excellent. a little famous yeah. for a little yeah. while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> Did you solve a complex problem on the block? <laughs> well, this yeah, is point. How, to, yeah. how to hold down a job and do up a house. Yeah, it was pretty complex. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is, yes. So, Roger, well, what, what, are you, what are yeah. you up to next? What's on the horizon? Um, so Barbara and I are doing a lot of work at the university that we work at, the University of Technology, Sydney, bringing together people from across the university from multiple disciplines, looking at health through a few different lenses. So that's our, our current collaboration and also bringing in partners from industry to collaboratively engage with some of the big health challenges that our society is facing. So that's the big focus at the moment, as well as working on the Master of Creative Intelligence and Strategic Innovation uh, at TD yeah. School at UTS. And I should say that Barbara runs a subject in that master's program that is available without enrolling in the master's and it's available online to anyone anywhere in the world it's called creative catalyzer and we will put notes to all of this stuff in the in the yeah. show notes as well now Absolutely. before we send you uh, on your way where can we find the book like where, where do we go to get your book and i cannot recommend this enough and it's literally yeah anyway uh, as you can tell, I'm a bit excited by it. But are you, where can we find your book? And then following up, where can we find you and connect with you outside of our podcast? So the book is probably most easily found online. Uh, so in Australia, if you look up Creative Reboot and you look up our surnames, you will find Booktopia probably has yep. the, the best is the best stockist. It's in Glee Books. It will be in the MCA and um, you can request it at other at other bookshops too. And then it is available all in Europe and in the UK. And I believe again it's best if you just Google it. So I know it's um at Book Depository. Yeah. Uh, but basically I've looked at heaps of online booksellers and it's it's everywhere. So you, you okay. will find it that way. Okay. It's also in bookshops internationally. The 
previous one I worked on designing for the common good was in heaps of bookshops in London. I had such a kick to walk into a bookshop and not expecting to see it, see a book with my name on it in a bookshop. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm definite, a definite buzz. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe you got into the MCA because I, I often, I'm sure I've chatted with John about it before, are not the best books in the whole world in art museum bookshops like, <laughs> like all my all my books about innovation and creativity almost come from there that's where i get all my inspiration from so kudos to you to our landing in there because that's uh, no small feat and look where can we connect with both of you loads of you know linkedin websites what, what what's happening in your world socially that where we can say hello roger i'll go to you first <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're both on LinkedIn. There's also a QR code on the back of the book that takes you through to a website, ci6.org, and that'll be a place where we invite people to contribute case studies and contribute their creative methods uh, moving forward. So there's a QR code on the back of it, but it's ci6six.org, and we, I'm on LinkedIn. We also both work at UTS yeah. in the transdisciplinary school, so if you... If you just Google our names, it will take you to our staff profiles and our email addresses are there too. So you can you can find us that way. We're just trying to build a community of practice and it goes all the way from the book to the short courses to the community that we're building with the Masters of Creative Intelligence and Strategic Innovation. And that goes all the way out to all the research projects that we do as well. Fantastic. And um, I was just going to say, uh, is there any opportunity that you're going to be coming to the UK anytime soon? Actually, I would love to. <laughs> I so would I. <laughs> I just go, uh, please come and say hello. If you ever do find yourself this way, please come and say hello. I'd love to catch up and buy you a drink. Uh, Roger, but you were saying, have you got something on the horizon? Uh, no, I, I was just saying, I, I've got a, a visiting research fellowship at the Central St. Martin's College, University of the Arts London. And before COVID, I was over there at least once a year, catching up with the, the team over there. So hoping to get back there soon. And I'll definitely remind you that you offered to buy me a beer. Right, so I, I, like, I like this. Got a book nymphs and a Central St. Martin's. These are all my highlight reels where I want to be. So this is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well done. So look, thank you so so much for giving up your time, your energy, and all. Man, I just—it's literally ten episodes here. So um, maybe uh, in the future we'd love to get you back on and talk a little bit more about this stuff. And yeah, look, all the best with the book launch. And there's so many exciting things coming on. And yeah, again, thanks so much for joining us on the occupation philosophers such a pleasure yeah thanks to you both thanks so much for having us it's been a pleasure john i know we say this every time but holy crap batman Oh, <laughs> <laughs> holy crap oh. holy crap indeed i felt like as they were coming at us with all those fantastic ideas and insights it was like kapow kaboom bosh <laughs> i mean just one after the other massively profound thoughts and ideas just absolutely brilliant i could have sat there all day really just shooting the breeze and riffing on ideas it was brilliant no and that there's Oh, yeah, so deep. The, the the depth and breadth of knowledge across so many areas. What a what a pleasure to have those two people on the show. 
Yeah, and they've synthesized it. And of course, yeah. that is the beauty of it all, isn't it? In all of this creative space, as you go out and have all those different disciplines that you dip into and have intersections with philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, art, architecture. And then you're able to synthesize that into then mm. something that you can present to people and say, look, here's a way of thinking. Here's how to break out of patterns of thoughts and actually do things differently. That's the genius or part of the genius anyway. No, yeah, and they've, <laughs> they've brought, they brought it in a way which is easy to engage with, especially in their book, which I keep recommending. How do you bring all this into a way that you can play with as well? Because their book is a bunch of activities as well. So, John, speaking of synthesizing, Let's look at this through some of our takeaways through the lens of, you know, individual team and sort of a leader or organisational wide. What's yep. something, yeah, you took away from that? You're sitting at home. What's the individual lesson just for yourself? The individual lesson is the idea that there are multiple creative intelligences, just as the way there are multiple intelligences. You know, people yeah. can be kinesthetically intelligent or academically intelligent, intellectually, interpersonally. And the same for creativity. So it would be to say, recognize we all have a creative intelligence and straight away, just put that to one side that you are not creative. That's not true. Yeah. You've just got to tap into maybe what your creative intelligence core is. There'll be something there in the way you express things creatively. So find it. Yeah. And I like the one where she said, uh, yeah, any creativity is attention. Anyone can practice paying attention. And as we mm. know, put your phone down and look like, it is yeah. not hard. I love that thought of hers around just look for things which are blue today. Like what a great little game to have every day and imagine what you'll notice. Although as she was saying that, I did think it must take her absolutely ages to go to the shops and back. Ha <laughs> ha, yeah. She'd be stuck. stopping every 30 seconds going, look at that. Isn't that interesting? It's stuck in the look at that blue style. thing over there. Yeah, I've got yellow. <laughs> <laughs> so teams, what do you think about teams? What did you get from some of the thoughts there that might distill into useful advice for teams. Well, there's a couple there, but th that piece around reframing, like just are we asking the right question? Do we need to reframe this and look at this from another lens? And often it's driven by maybe the leader of that team. Okay, I know how to solve this or this is my background. And yeah, we all do this. It's not like a, a necessarily a bad thing, but we're driven by, oh, this is my experience. We'll frame it this way. Yeah. So um, yeah. Just, yeah, reframing that all the problems, all teams are trying to solve problems. And then for me, I think it came back to one of the foundational qualities was play. And uh, Barbara talks about creating, making sure there's a safe space for people to play. So reframe play as not being the opposite to work, but a means to open yeah. up curiosity and exploration. And in that, ensure that people can explore and play safely. We've it's talked about video. that before. Yeah. But it's really important. The opposite of depression plays the opposite of depression. Like what a, a reframe that is. And look, also doing that, you unlock analysis paralysis so that we just go round and around and around mm. and you get nowhere. Yeah. I don't know about you, Some I've never seen that in any team I've worked with. No. <laughs> never, at all. Ah! never at all. Never at all. Yeah. So and uh, just thinking organizationally or maybe with that leadership lens, but maybe anything from that, John? For me, she talked to it a couple of times, building that community of practice. And I think what's great is the Creative Reboot book and the cards absolutely give you a practical way to do that, to build a community of practice, practice whereby you get to get better creative fitness. 
And that was the other thing that stood out for me, that uh, it's all about exercising, as it were, to get to a point where you are creatively fit and it comes through practice. Yeah, and I liked on the end of, and this pops up time and time again, like this theme is so consistent, the power of story. So the last mm. piece of their process, number six, and on a, a bunch of different things, so the, you know, tell a great story, engage people with story, find the story. And as she said, it does not live in a spreadsheet. Or maybe it does, but you need to get that, you need to get that story out. So, wow. There we are. Great show. Let's do our wrap-up then, Simon. So if you're listening, please leave a review, uh, rate us, tell your friends, get other people to join the community of practice. Tell, tell your nan, your pop. Tell your nan, granddad. especially your nan. Has she joined yet? No. No, no, no. She's uh, joining from another world, I would say, John, but that's another story. So, <laughs> so but thanks for being well, there. God bless you now. So. <laughs> All right. Scrub that. Tell your friends. Check out the website, occupationalphilosophers.com. Get in touch, uh, occupationalphilosophers at gmail.com. And, and we've got a bunch me- of socials as well. You can uh, ping us up. So John's all over them. And in the meantime. Stay curious. Make stuff. Play more. Have fun. And date life. Now, John, I've got one more little, uh, I've got one more little, uh, what's the word we're looking for? School report? Yeah, school report. One more little school report. Now, this person looks like they could be blown over with a feather both mentally and physically, with his long hair being the only thing he ever talks about. Is this The Rock or John Rice? Piss off.